This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Fish Untamed Podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 95 with George Cater on fly fishing for pike. Great. Well, um, I just love to start by getting a background on my guests. So I'd love to hear how you got your start in the outdoors and uh, specifically into fly fishing. Uh, thanks, Katie. Uh, well, I actually did not grow up in the outdoors. Um, I was a kid who grew up in an apartment complex. And so um, I grew up with a single mom, was, uh, me and my brother. And uh, we, you know, we kind of grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, you know, in a suburb outside of Chicago, um, but in a, in, a, in a pretty tough area. You know, an area that was, uh, um, I wouldn't say crime and gangs and those types of things. They were there in the uh, in some of the other apartment complexes, but um, ours was was a little bit uh, uh, a little bit nicer. And and so, um, my love of the outdoors was always, how can I get out of the apartment complex? How can I get into the outdoors? You know, so as a kid, I just I I had a fascination with and a love for for the mountains. Um, I remember as a little boy watching Jeremiah Johnson and thinking. That, that's that's who I want to be, you know. And so, um, so but anyway, when I when I went to uh, I went to college, I was fortunate enough to go to college. Uh, I was a good high school football player, and I got a partial scholarship to Winona State in Minnesota. Um, and then the second half of my tuition was paid for through a tuition award program for poor kids. So it was kind of a kind of a neat thing, and uh, that got me kind of my first exposure into the real outdoors. And, uh, then I met my wife, and we, we transferred up to Superior, Wisconsin, and that's when I first started fishing and kayaking, and really, and that's way up north on Lake Superior, 
and near the UP of Michigan, near Duluth, Minnesota. And so that's, that's when I really started loving the outdoors. Um, but really my, my passion for, for fly fishing was interesting. Um, my mother-in-law lived in Middleton, Wisconsin, which is a suburb to the north of Madison. And we were visiting her one weekend and I love fishing. And I grew up fishing with my grandma. She taught me how to fish. And I'd fish in all the ponds around the apartment complexes and stuff like that when I was a kid. But, uh, my mother-in-law, she, she said, you know what, there's a famous trout stream down the road called Black Earth Creek. And she was, go check it out. So my wife was working at the time. I was just kind of hanging around. And uh, now I'm like 18, 19 years old, you know, so, and I uh, went down there with a little spin rod and, and I was catching a few trout. I was having a great time, you know, and so I, I saw these guys fly fishing and I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to do that, you know, and so, um, here I am like 20 years old and I, and I, uh, um, I like, I go out to like a gander mountain and buy a full rig, you know, a full setup, like 30 bucks. That's all the money I had, you know, no idea how to even tie on a fly or whatever. And of course I was tangled and the thing was a mess within, you know, first two or three casts. I had no idea. And I'd go pick up my spin rod and come back and catch a few fish or whatever. Well, in that, a couple of years go by and, and uh, then, like a lot of folks in my generation, I'm 52, but um, a river runs through, it comes out, you know, and that uh, that was a big game changer for me because I watched this beautiful movie seeing fly fishing and thinking, okay, I need to do this. This has to be me, you know. And so I stopped. I, I never took my spin rod back again. I, back then, there was no YouTube. You couldn't take clinics or classes. There was just nothing, you know. And so I bought a little like booklets, like these little things of how to do knots, <laughs> you know, and how to how to how to like you know cast and all that. And so after a while, I just kind of started getting the hang of it, and I would get knotted up, and I would just kind of figure out how to tie a you know a blood knot or whatever it was, and um, I started getting it and I just decided one day I was, I was going to be a fly fisherman and, and never pick up a spin rod again, really. And, and that was kind of the beginning of the end. So that was 32 years ago now that I started fly fishing. So, um, you know, that's been in my blood and, and Katie, like I said, I, my passion for most of my adult life was besides fly fishing is whitewater kayaking. And I've, I've been a class five whitewater kayaker who, I've kayaked some of the hardest water in North America. Um, you know, everything from, you know, 30 foot waterfalls to 50, 60 foot waterfalls and all over the, from the UP of Michigan out to Colorado, down to, you know, Tennessee, West Virginia, all over the, the country really. And so, you know, anywhere there's moving water is kind of where, where I want to be. I just, uh, I love it. You know, it's to me, rivers and streams are, you know, like the life source source of the planet, you know, and so when you're fishing, you're you're riding a wave on a kayak or you're running a waterfall, it's just uh, to me, it's just exhilarating. It's amazing. How do you choose between uh, fishing and kayaking when you come when you come across a river and you know your your two passions are are within the same arena, but you kind of you can't really do them together. Like you've got to choose one or the other because I, I assume they kind of cover the same season, right? Like a, kind of the spring summer is that. Wouldn't kayaking is also pretty big? Yeah, you know, it really depends. I mean, most of my, I haven't, I haven't been as, in, as involved in my kayaking sport in the last couple of years only because I've started my guide business, you know, and so 
Um, I'm trying to really build up a strong clientele base. I'm trying to build up something really special. And so that takes a lot of uh, time and energy, obviously. Um, but the thing is, when you're, you're kayaking these beautiful rivers, these are also places where there's wonderful fishing. So it's, it's both. Some of my kayaking crew also fly fishes, so that's really fun. Um, but really, it kind of you kind of just depend. Is it going to be a kayaking weekend? Is it going to be a fishing weekend? You kind of have to make that decision because there's so there's so much gear involved with both, um, and there's only so much time in the day, you know. So, you know, if we're going to run some river, and you know, you got to run shuttle, and you got to, you know, by the time you do all that, and you make breakfast, you're camping out. You know, I've got a four-wheel drive van I sleep in, so it's pretty easy. But you know, it's uh, it's still a it's still a lot to to kind of plan to do both. You know, now when my wife and I are going on trips, I'll take both, and that's easy peasy. You know. Yeah, we we kind of suffer from the same problem where we'll go we're going camping or something, and we see that there's you know good fishing in the area, but there's also you know mountain biking in the area, and there's also this and that and the other thing. And we throw all the gear we own into the truck, uh, and then we end up not doing any of the activities to the fullest because we're trying to fit in like a little bit of everything. And it's like we need to just stop. We just you know tell ourselves that this is what we're doing this weekend and just be done with it so we can actually enjoy that one thing because we always end up over our heads um, with way too much stuff and can't actually dive into any activity fully. I know. And then it becomes kind of unrealistic. So when you're kayaking, you get up in the morning, right? Let's say you got a crew, you know, we got a crew of like, usually if we're running really hard stuff, it's usually three or four, you know, but we're usually in the middle of nowhere. So you gotta, you gotta make some breakfast, get some food in you, you know, do all those things. We got set shuttle, you know? And so sometimes our shuttles are, are an hour one way. So your, your buddies might be waiting for two hours, you know, to run shuttle, especially in some of the, the back country of like West Virginia and stuff where we go. But, and then, then by the time you run the river and, and you're scouting and you, you know, whatever you're doing on the river and you're done, you're, man, I'll tell you, you're, you're pretty much trashed. You know? So <laughs> it's like, it's like time to have an IPA and or a shot of whiskey and, and have some dinner and relive the day and tell stories around a campfire. You know, you don't, you don't have much time to do both, you know? And if, and if you're fishing, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you're getting up. If you're, if we're running a river, like with my, my fishing buddies who are two of them are re- kind of retired kayakers. Now they're a little older than me. They're not kayaking much, but they're both fly fishermen you're still running a shuttle. If I got to put my raft in somewhere and you know, it's the same thing and, and you're fishing all day and now here it is, you're coming off at dark. I'm kind of like a sunrise, a sunset guy. So it's like when I'm doing something, it's full on, you know? And, um, so there's really not time to do more than one thing. I don't. So the, the first time you went fly fishing that, that time that you were kind of tipped off on the trout stream, but you, you, you didn't really know what you were doing yet. Um, what did you do when you got there? Cause it sounds like you hadn't really yet dove into um, actually learning how to fly cast. And you said that you didn't have YouTube or anything at the time. So when you showed up to that stream for the very first time with a fly rod in your hand, what did you do with it? And, and you know, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> I, I bought a rig that was already set up with a leader. Okay. And a fly line. I mean, I'm not kidding. It was Gander mountain brand and it was and that, that company's not even around anymore, but it, it was like 30 bucks for the whole rig. And all you got to do is just tie a fly at the end, you know? And so I, and I could do a fisherman knot. So, you know, a clinch knot. So I'd be like, well, all right, I could do this. You know, I just picked it up. I knew the leader had to be outside of the rod. And, you know, I knew that the, like the fly line itself was a little bit heavier at the front. And I'm pretty athletic. And so I'm like, usually able to kind of get stuff, you know, 
but there's it's it's like I tell my clients that are new to it. I'm like, I, I just wouldn't hand you a, a set of golf clubs and say, good luck, you know? Um, but that's what I did to myself, you know? And so I literally had, was tangled up in knots and had no leader to even work with within five minutes of my first time. So I had no idea. Um, but then I just started practicing. I just started kind of figuring this thing out a little bit, you know? Uh, med- I remember a couple of guys that were, you know, kind of these old timer fishermen out there in the Wisconsin drift list. And I'd ask them some questions. Okay. What do you do? And some guy was telling me, Hey, you got to stop right here at your ear and, you know, let the rod load and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, eventually I just kind of picked up on it, but I went through that phase where, where a lot of fly fishermen do where they start, where they go, I want to try fly fishing. All right. I'm terrible at this. This is too hard. I'm going to go back and throw spinners. I'm going to throw lures you know, and, and you go back and forth, back and forth. And, and then, and then I literally had like this one time where I, I told myself, I remember too, where I said, I'm going to be a fly fisherman. That's it. I'm not a fisherman anymore. I'm a fly fisherman. I'm going to, and that's what I'm going to do. And, and I just stuck to it. And since then I, I've hardly ever casted a spin rod or a bait caster. And in fact, that's a funny story because one of my clients is a fly fisherman, a doctor out at Chicago suburbs, brought his dad with. But his dad didn't want to learn how to fly fish. His dad just wanted to throw a spinner. So but his, so I had to bring, like, I do have a couple of good spinning setups, some St. Croix rods and whatever. And I brought it, but I, I rigged it. And I'm like, man, I haven't thrown a spin rod forever. I'm like, okay, I know how to do this. But the first time I, I'm like, I want to check them. He's throwing like this whopper plopper on the top water and, blah, 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 and you know, it makes a lot of noise and whatever. First time I go to practice to see if this thing's, you know, casting okay. I chucked it up in the trees. <laughs> <laughs> and he's looking at me. I'm like, sorry, man. I'm not a spin fisherman. I don't really know how to do this. I hope you're better at for me. <laughs> he's like, oh, no, this guy's guiding me. Right. It's like a 20-hour lure, and I'm up there climbing a tree and getting it out. Like, we haven't even put the raft in the water yet. It's hilarious. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, but then I picked up the fly rod, and I'm like, you know, stick from 40 feet into a hula hoop on a bank, and he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, and so. Got to, yeah, prove yourself after that. <laughs> yeah, I had to redeem myself, you know. Um, but, yeah, so I just, you know, I just had to make a decision when I was a young guy. I was like, you know, I'm going to be a fly fisherman. You know, there was everything about it just intrigued me. And um, even like as a, as a football player and a football coach, and I love the fundamentals of, of sports. I don't love the sport themse- itself all the time. You know, it's, I, I love the, the concepts of like having to be really good at something to do it right. You know, that, that intrigues me. And so um, that's why fly fishing. And then just obviously it brings you to beautiful places. and there's an amazing aura about it, you know, so. I know we're going to get into uh, some like kind of detailed discussion of pike fishing today, but um, what you're talking about right now, I think fits in nicely with one thing you mentioned that you'd like to talk about, which is kind of the spiritual side of fly fishing, like the beauty of it and the beauty of the casting um, and how that kind of goes along with what you've named your guide service in the flow. Um, So tell me about that. Like what, you know, what draws you to fly fishing and kind of the more uh, spiritual side of it? Yeah. So I think, um, for some people, fishing or fly fishing or hunting or whatever they do in the outdoors, kayaking or whatever, it's just something to do. 
or it's just a sport or it's a hobby. Um, but it's different for me, you know? So, um, for me, kayaking and fly fishing is really, a it's beyond a passion for me. So it's, I would say it's more of a, of a spiritual way of me of celebrating life. It's a way of, of celebrating the beauty of, of nature, of God's creation. Um, it, it's just a way to also for me to express myself too. And so, um, and to challenge myself, you know, so all of those things to me is more of like a, gives me more of a spiritual sense of the sport. Um, it is a connection to God for me because I am in the outdoors and I, it's a time of reflection, of prayer, of meditation, all those things. My, my absolute favorite things to fly fish all by myself, you know, and so, and it's not, I have buddies and friends or clients or my kids or whoever who always want to fish, but, and that's fine. But when I'm out there by myself and it's just me and it's like, I'm in full on mode of, I'm going to go stalk these fish. I'm going to work hard at this. I'm going to nail these casts. And like 10 hours go by and it feels like it's 10 minutes. and that and, and that is the flow state that is hard to get to, you know, because, you know, like there's, there's a few things that have to go into an experience like that. And it, for example, you can't ever get into like a flow state like that when you're competitive because it has to be non-competitive, you know, like if I bow a cast, I, I, I don't flinch. Like I, I don't even think of it. If I, if I'm up and if I snag a tree or something, I just go get it and restart. You know, I never say, Oh darn, or all oh, this or oh, whatever, you know, I'll never pout and I'll be like, Oh, what the heck, you know, or get frustrated. For example, like I have clients that get frustrated, you know, and, and ooh, that's not going to get it done, you know? And so it, it's gotta be non-competitive. It's gotta be non-judgmental. It's gotta be, um, it's got to be something that that you love so much that you can lose yourself in it, and um, and that's what that's what kayaking and fly fishing does for me. And and obviously with with kayaking, there's that life like, hey, listen, I can get really hurt here. I can drown. I'm running up, you know, I'm running class five white water off of a mountainside. You know, that's different where you have to be so mentally focused and in the zone of you know, putting that paddle stroke in the right spot and timing your, your, your strokes and all those things. But with fly fishing, see, I'm, it's not a, it's not an extreme sport, but I still get that same feeling about it because if I know there's a fish there, you know, and if it's a, let's say it's a 30, 40 foot cast that I got to make, I got to get that fly like one inch off that bank. And if I can make that cast, I got a great chance of catching that fish, you know, and, and if the fish is there, they're usually going to take, if the fish isn't there, I get super excited about just nailing that cast. I, I made the cast, you know, and that's what counts because one day that fish will be there. And when that fish is there, then it's going to be a special moment to, to where I not only made the cast, but also cut the fish. And so when you do that for, 
for eight, 10 hours and you're out there on the river and, and, and you're just casting cast after cast after cast after cast. And it's that repetitive motion. That's when I find myself kind of, like I said, in the zone or in that flow state um, where, where time seems to stand still, you know, and, and it's a very special time because not everybody's experienced that, you know? And so um, that's, that's really why I named my, my, my guide business in the flow fly fishing, you know, and, you know, obviously it's got two meetings. You got the flow of the river, you know, but, and that's a very special thing in itself. You know, it's beautiful and it's mesmerizing, but it's that, it's that flow in your life. Can you know, like, so for example, like I, I get clients, that are, you know, doctors, lawyers, you know, engineers, high stress and, you know, and they go out there and, and maybe they don't fly fish a lot, but, you know, and, but what I want them to do is I want them to be able to forget their, their daily life. I want them to forget their problems, forget work. And I always focus on the cast, just make the cast, enjoy the cast. You know, the cat fly fishing is all about the cast. It's not about, it's about nailing that cast. And, and if there's a fish there, they're going to take, you know, and so that's, um, I think, I think that's what, what's so exciting about fly fishing and what makes it really special sport. And, and obviously it takes us to beautiful places, you know, I mean, it takes us to places where, where a few people go and when they do go, there's, you know, they don't do what we do. So, um, it's that it's the exercise, you know, I love hiking a river for eight or 10 hours and, and you're just like, holy cow, I am trashed, you know, the <laughs> next day, you know, I'm crapping up in my bed at night. My wife's like, what the heck? I'm like, well, I can't straighten my leg, you know, the cold water, and, you know, just everything about it. I, I can't, I can't say enough. And, and, uh, for me, I, I just, uh, it's just a, a really special thing. And I do it as much as I can because of that. Do you ever find it easier or harder to get in that flow state? Because I know you mentioned, um, you know, not not allowing yourself to get frustrated when you get caught in a in a, a tree or a bush, um, and just going and getting it and getting back to where you were and just like getting back in the rhythm of it. Um, and that's something I do struggle with. Uh, in that some days I will go out and everything is just working right. It's like everything's a well-oiled machine. I can't miss a cast. Every every cast is landing right where it should, and I just feel unstoppable. Um, and then there's other days where I go out and I, you know, it just seems like everything's going wrong. You know, like every cast I'm getting tangled up, every cast I'm getting caught in something. And it's really hard for me to fight through that because I'm always striving for getting into that flow state. Um, and kind of what you're describing is that more spiritual, you're just like, you're just in the moment, you're just there, fully present, participating in it. Um, but I still find myself, you know, on those days where it's just not going right, uh, kind of struggling to to force through it, but it doesn't feel like something I should be forcing my way into. That's kind of the opposite of, of what it is, is, you know, it's not a forceful thing. It's an effortless thing when it's going right. Um, do you ever, like, how do you deal with that? Or is that something you've just kind of, you know, gotten past and you can just, you know, calm yourself down and not let that frustration get to you? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, what you're talking about is, is basically that's life, you know, that's life. You know, sometimes in life we have these wonderful days where our day is great. We, we had a good night's sleep. We, we ate healthy, we worked out, we had a great day at work, you know, and that's just life, you know? And so that that's the one thing I, I talk about a lot with clients and, and is that 
and even with my boys, you know, is that, you know, fly fishing, it does mimic life in a lot of ways. You're going to go out there some days, you're going to have a wonderful, great day. You're going to crush it. And there's other days where you're going to go out there and there's the fish aren't going to be biting and you're going to be off with your cast. And, and so, you know, it happens to me too. You know, it's like, you know, it's I'm, I'm probably as good of a caster as anybody. And I, and I, and I, there's days I go out there and I still throw it in the trees and, yep. <laughs> you know, swap line or whatever. Um, but what I, what I usually do is, is, is if I'm feeling a little bit off, um, I, I lower my expectations for the day. I'll, I'll, I'll say, Hey, listen, I'm, I'm going to probably turn this more into a river hike. Um, I'll scout spots. I might go and, and, um, clean up some trash and then take a break or sometimes I'll just sit down on the side of the river. I'll make a little fire for sometimes and, uh, and, and just do a restart, you know, um, gosh, just so many people are, are, they just get so down and judgmental so quickly, you know, what am I doing wrong? What's, what's going on? Why am I doing this? I, I get it so much being a guide because, you know, I fish almost every day of my life. I mean, yesterday it was 20 degrees out here in Southern Wisconsin. And, you know, I went out there for about six hours. My wife thinks I'm crazy. And I'm like, yeah, I am. You know, <laughs> I, I caught, I caught a nice like 28 inch pike, you know, I got it on video. It was cool. Uh, it was fun. You know, the rest of the time I was just casting and breaking ice off of my guides. So, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I just think you, you, you just need to kind of smile and, and say, okay, let's go back to fundamentals. Let's go back to basics. You know, if I blow some casts, I'll ask myself, okay, what am I doing? You know, what's, what's going on with my cast? How did I, why didn't I make that? Like in my waters, like if you, if you blow a cast at a smallmouth bass, that bass is probably gone, but a pike will, will kind of stick around. And so you're not going to really spook pike. And so I'll, so like, I'll just like, if I blow a cast, I'll come back and I'll try that same cast. I'm not trying to catch the fish, but I'll try making that same cast 10 times in a row. Okay. So I threw it in that tree. Okay. Now let's go get the, let's get the fly. Come on back and let's nail that cast. Let's go. Just nail the cast. All right. I got it. I got it. And hit that spot. I do that sometimes with clients too. I'll be like, you know, I'm, I'll be, I'll like, know there's a fish there, you know? And, and the client will blow the cast, throw a bunch of slop in the water or whatever. And I'll be like, hey, let's, I'm going to drop anchor right now. That fish is probably gone, but let's just let's nail that cast a couple more times. You know, let's get that cast out. And that's all you can do, really, you know, is going with, with, the, with the right mindset that, uh, you know, that uh, you just want to improve and enjoy your day. Yeah, that's something that I think I it's, – it's one of those, like, do as I say, not as I do uh, – things because I you know I used to do a little bit of guiding and I would tell beginners you know on a first day out hey you're going to get frustrated today it's going to happen there's there's no way around it you're going to get frustrated when you do just stop for a minute or two and just like look up look at the mountains breathe for a little bit um and then come back to it but like don't cast again while you're still in that negative mindset because that's going to ruin that cast and that's going to ruin the next cast and you're just going to get into this like rut that you can't get out of because the more frustrated you get the worse you're going to get um and so I would tell people that to just like stop, breathe, you know, sit down, look at the, look at the lake, look at the mountains. But then when I'm out there, I like don't remember to do that myself. You know, I, I will fall into that rut. And so it's like, I've got to sit back and remind myself 
hey, you're out here fishing. Like, it could be so much worse. You could not be out here fishing, <laughs> you know? Like, right, just be right. happy you're there. And, you know, so what if it doesn't go well? You know, at the, at the worst, you get to walk along the river for a bit and look at, the, look at the scenery, which is, you know, a great day in itself for some people. They might just be going out for a walk anyway. Um, so why am I going to get upset that I didn't catch a fish while I was on that walk, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's different for me than it is when I'm with clients. Like when I go out, I kind of, I'm going to catch fish because the type of, the style of fishing that, that I fish, smallmouth bass, pike, muskie, that type of fish, it, it, it's very similar to saltwater fishing where you got to nail the cast. If you don't nail the cast, you're not going to catch them. And that's intriguing for me. Like, but when I guide out in the driftless for trout, Anybody can throw a nymph. I mean, in fact, I tell my, I, I, I always say to people, I say, nymphing is nymphing. It's not fly fishing. There's, you know, if you're going to go out and nymph for trout, that's great. I love it, actually. I, when I go out nymphing for trout, I'm like, I'm having a great time. There's no pressure. I just chuck it out there and let it drift down to me. It's fun, you know, and so it's relaxing. But that's not fly fishing. You know, that's nymphing. And so, um, a lot of times I'll take beginners nymphing if they want to go trout fishing because I know they'll catch fish. They'll feel good about that. I'll still teach them, obviously, take them through the entire progression of learning how to fly cast, you know, starting on land and then moving to the wading and all that. But but the just actually catching fish on a fly rod is so fun for them that I tend to tend to take most of my beginners trout fishing first, teaching them to nymph because you know, hundred percent of the time they're going to catch fish. So when you, what counts as a uh, fly fishing for you? Is it all in the cast? Like if you're not getting, you know, a back cast and a forward cast and laying out line versus, you know, nymphing, you're often just kind of hucking an indicator and a heavy rig out. Like, is that, is that what differentiates it for you? Well, it does, but I would also say there's way more to it. So such as fly construction and all the material that goes into that fly and what you want that fly to do leader construction is your leader matching the fly you know and so are you using a floating line or using a sink tip and what rate is your sink tip um so there's a lot that goes into it you know so um when you start and what are water conditions too you know so water conditions play a big deal when you're talking smallmouth bass and pike and muskie and you know and so um, makes a big difference. Like out in the driftless where I fish for trout here in Wisconsin, the water conditions are almost the same every time you go out there because they're spring creeks, right? So these spring creeks are flowing at the same rate, same temperature pretty much. There's a slight fluctuation in the temperature and you're always, for trout, obviously you're always fishing rising temperature. Um, but when, you, when you're talking smallmouth bass and pike and muskie and these warm water species, you have to look at everything from the fly to the leader to the size rod that you're using and, and everything in between. All of those have to match and be right for, for your situation. And so for me, like like the difference between the two would be like, I got to think a lot more about all of that for myself or for clients than if I'm going trout fishing, you know? So if I'm going trout fishing, you know, I, I can, like, I don't have to think much about my leader. 
you know, so I know exactly what I'm going to use. It's going to be your typical nine foot leader. I can throw on, it doesn't matter if it's mono or floral, the trout are still going to take, you know, it, uh, I can throw a streamer on the end of my, my butt section. I can, you know, throw a dry on the end of my sink, nine foot, you know, nymph section. It doesn't make a difference. They're going to take it. Um, if the situation's right. So, but a lot changes with warm water. So let's, let's get into warm water a little bit. Um, cause I know we're going to mostly talk about pike today and I, maybe, maybe you're the best person to ask where is the best place to start? Cause I, I'm inclined to start with something like gear. Um, but I know we'll also probably talk about techniques and things like that. So maybe just give me your kind of 30,000 foot view of, of how you would approach fishing for pike for somebody who maybe hasn't tried it before and is looking to get into it. Yeah, you bet. So first of all, pike live in the same waters as smallmouth bass and muskie. Those are the three game species. Sometimes there's largemouth bass in some of our creeks and rivers as well, but not that many. And then obviously you've got the food that they feed on as well. And so you've got uh, bait fish patterns. You've got crayfish. I've seen smallmouth rip the guts out of clams, you know. Um, You've got suckers and and carp and, and those types of fish in the water, sculpins, um, you know, and so they're all of those are swimming around in the same water. And so, you know, basically, you know, when you're targeting uh, pike, you're also tar- you're also had a chance to catch smallmouth bass and, and muskie as well in a lot of our rivers. Um, but you need to decide is 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 what's your primary goal of the day, you know, and and so if your primary goal of the day is to target, um, you know, pike and muskie, well, that changes the game because now we're going to throw a different rod, you know, so now we're going to throw, you know, a 10 foot rod or a 10 weight rod, nine foot, 10 weight. Now our flies are going to be, you know, these, you know, and so these are some that I tied the other night at a fly tying event, uh, which are like six, seven, eight inch, you know, deceiver patterns or Buford patterns. So the game changes, and then you're going to decide, okay, well, we're going to use a sink tip, and so now our leader construction is only going to be about four feet, and I usually throw, like, I do, like, a two-foot butt section of 60-pound down to two-foot of 50-pound, maybe a 40-pound bite wire tip it, you know, something like that. So you got to decide on, on really what your goal is, because if your smallmouth bass goal for the day um, then that changes the game a little bit because now you're downsizing to eight weight rods and now you're um, now you're downsizing your flies to four to six inch flies, you know, and um, your leaders might be different. Now you might be on small, a little bit skinnier water where maybe you're throwing a floating line uh, with, uh, with a bait fish pattern that's only getting, you know, in the middle of the water column, similar to like throwing a streamer for a trout, you know, or your top water for frogs, you know, so... All that changes. Um, but in terms of if I decide I'm, I'm going to really focus on pike, and that's my that's that's one of my most absolute favorite species. Um, now it really comes down to your equipment first, like you had mentioned. And, and really it needs to be a tight uh, a 10, 10 weight rod. And so um, and now you just need to decide if you're going top water, or if you're going floaty line or sink tip from there. Um, and once you make that decision, now, now you're, you're, uh, you know, you really have to find the right fly, you know, and what's that fly going to do in the water? 
you know, so for streamer patterns, um, pipe love a fly that kicks and flutters. And so, it, you know, I'm always looking for a fly to kick to the left or kick to the right and then sit and flutter. And they'll usually strike it on the flutter. So as soon as that that fly begins to flutter, they'll, they'll strike. So um, and we could talk more about that, too, down the road. But, but you know, that 10-foot, no, I'm sorry, that 10-weight rod and is a starting point. But the leader construction really makes a difference compared to like what fly you're using and what fly line you're using. Is the 10 weight rod more for the size of the flies you're casting or for the size of the fish that you're bringing in? It's both, but I would say it's primarily for the, for the size of the fly. Okay. If, if fly size were not an issue at all, what weight rod would be appropriate just like for the size of the fish you're bringing in? Like I, I have to imagine that for, for many pike that people would catch, it wouldn't be necessary for a 10 weight. Like I would picture more like an eight, nine weight, but I, I could be totally wrong. I'm just kind of curious if, if fly selection were a non-issue. Yeah. So it's an eight weight for sure. Okay. I wouldn't go any lighter than an eight weight though. Any lighter and, and, and you're going to be stressing that fish and, and a big pike can, can snap that rod. So um, I'd say an eight is probably perfect. So for, for example, most of the time I throw an eight weight and I throw a fly that is like a tweener fly. You know, it's a fly that you can still catch smallmouth, but you're still going to catch pike. It's a tweener. You know, it's that it's that it's that six inch fly. It's perfect. You know, and so it's like that's or or you know maybe something a little bit smaller, but um, that's the one I tend to tend to throw the most for clients. You know they they just want to have some action and get on fish and a lot most of my clients i would say are intrigued by pike fishing because they get these pike are huge you know and they strike like crazy and the, the attack on the fly is unbelievable you know and so it's like they're basically like freshwater barracuda you know <laughs> they're just they come from like 20 feet away and you just, boom you see the whole thing you know it's it's amazing um so if somebody says, "Hey, I really want to focus on, on pike," then I'm saying, "Okay, we'll throw. We're going to throw ten weights because we're going to throw some some chunks of meat at them, um, you know." But if it's my typical guy who just wants to get on fish, smallmouth pike, and you know, then then we'll use an eight weight, you know, because the pike they're they'll still go after those smaller flies. Yeah, I caught a pike this past summer on like a size I don't know maybe ten woolly bugger, like you know they. Not, yeah, right. They'll take it. <laughs> Um, so tell me about the, the technique. I assume, um, a lot of what you're doing is sight fishing, but tell me if I'm wrong there. Uh, it sounds like the cast, you're trying to like really nail like where the fly is landing. So walk me through, you know, you, I assume spot a pike. What do you do from there? So some of my rivers are definitely fly, uh, sight fishing. Really cool. Like these pikes are, these pike are laid up. I would say very similar to like snook kind of laid up in the mangroves, you know, where you can see them. I'm in my raft. A lot of times I have my casting platform on the front of it. So my clients are standing up. You can really see them sitting there. But the pike are always going to be in the slower moving water. So like where the smallmouth will be more hanging out, like in the runs or the currents or, you know, where there's a little faster water, the pike are going to be in the eddies. They're going to be in, in, in the slow water. They're going to be where the structure is. They're going to be uh, where the pockets are on the banks. Um, where 
pikes are going to be any, you're going to find smallmouth kind of like everywhere in those spots as well. But you're also going to find smallmouth along rocks and rock gardens and, and little rock outcroppings and things like that, where the pike are going to be in that slower water uh, where they just sit and they can ambush prey, you know? And so I always talk about with, with people, um, that we first got to find them. We got to hunt them, you know, and, and it's very similar to hunting. Where are they? Okay. There's structure there. There's a log there. Um, my favorite is the fish pockets and points. So you've got a high grass bank and what's happening above the bank is happening below the bank. So that outer bend of the river has usually been cut out. You've got a little bit of depth and you get these little pockets, right? So there's the grass or the, the mud bank is kind of like, pocketed out and it's about maybe two foot long and you've got a point at the front a point at the back and the pocket in between and those pike love to sit in those pockets and you got to nail that pocket though you know you got to nail it from you know 30 30 feet minimum you know to really if we get much closer you know the it's just it, it gets tough because I don't, I don't know, but we might be spooking them. I feel like we do if we're getting closer, you know. But a lot of times people will flop their cast when it's too close, you know. It's like you just if it's too close, it's hard to be delicate and kind of lay it down in there. Um, but that's, that's where those fish are living. And so, you know, we got to hunt those spots and we got to keep banging bang those spots all the way down the river, you know. And I do the same thing if I'm waiting, if I'm on there by myself, like yesterday. It's the same concept. I'm hitting the pockets. I'm hitting the structure. Slow moving water. The eddies behind structure. Super good spots as well. How how deep in the water column are you generally trying to get your fly? That depends if I'm like right now our water is really low because it's winter, you know, and so and we're we're actually in like a three year drought now in southeast Wisconsin, and so our water has been very low, and so you could fish like um, a floating line is what I'm with right now with a pretty long leader for me. I mean, I would say, I think right now, I think yesterday when I was out there, you know, I'm probably approaching eight foot on that leader, you know, which is really unusual, but I've got like two feet of 40 pound bite wire. And that's, what's getting the fly down. No matter what the water depth is, I want the fly to hover at about the middle of the water column. Most of the time, you know, I mean, but you got to remember that 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 from June to August, I'm almost fishing frog patterns. I mean, eighty percent of the time. So we're we're on top with floating lines, throwing frogs, because it's so exciting, you know. And the top water bite here in Southeast Wisconsin is unbelievable, you know. And so, you know, it's hard to pass that up, you know, because it's the blowups are absolutely huge you know so it's super cool but um you know but like right now there's no obviously it depends on the season so that's only that's only a couple months out of the year so the rest of the time we're throwing streamers and i would say water depth has probably the most important factor and where you want that fly you know i like it right for pike i like it right in the middle of the water column and i don't want that fly grabbing the bottom so if i have too heavy of a sink tip on and I'm snagging on bottom. I don't want that. Right now, our water level is winter low. 
you know, you got a lot of ice on the banks. Um, and so because it's low water, I'm actually throwing a floating line right now with a longer leader, you know, and so, and with that 40 pound bite wire, it gets it down right in the middle of the water column. So it's perfect. I feel like the, uh, the frog pattern you're describing is kind of like the pike equivalent of like hopper season for trout as a trout person. Like that's what I'm picturing where you've got kind of a golden window from maybe early July to maybe early September where, you know, you throw out these giant foam hopper patterns and trout just hammer them all day long. And it's just, it doesn't get any better than that. Um, but it's a very short window and you've got to like cash in on it while you can. Cause you know, throwing that, uh, out of season is not going to get you anywhere. So it's, that's kind of what I'm picturing for Pike. Does that sound like an apt comparison to you? Yeah, it's a, it's an absolute comparison. Our hopper season for trout in Wisconsin is more late July through August. Um, but for top water for smallmouth and pike, um, I'll catch top water in May through September, actually. But really, that that prime season is June and July. You know, in August or water, and, and the first two weeks of August. But then it all has to do with the water temperature. Once that water temperature starts dropping, and, and I feel like I'm not getting as many blowups on the top water, then I'll switch to, to streamer fishing. You know, again, you know, just to get get the, um, you know, to get the fish. Because I know I know where they're at, so it's a matter of of you know where are they going to take it in the water column, whether it's on top or or mid or or, or low on the bottom. So, it, um, and I'll switch accordingly. Tell me more about the seasonality and and what the pike are doing in each season. Um, you know, maybe just a spring, summer, fall, winter kind of cycle. Like what what are the pike doing, and how are you adapting to those changes? Yeah, so pike, I fish for pike a lot. Like, personally, it's the fish that I probably target the most because I have so much access to it year-round. The best way to answer that question is to start with with winter, okay? Um, And so winter pike season, and I'll just, I know it's not winter, but I'll I'll just call it winter, like November 1st, right? So at the end of October, the smallmouth start to go dormant. You know, they, they really are migrating towards these deep holes. Um, and some of our, some of our rivers and creeks that I fish are actually tributaries of larger rivers. And so they, they're making their way back down and they'll come back up to spawn in the spring, very similar to like a steelhead would. Um, and so a lot of times piker, the only thing that's left in the water and which is really fun. And so around November 1st, I call it, I start that as my winter pike season and winter pike then go from November, December, January, and February. And so I'll, I know where there's open water year round. And so I'll go out there and find it. I'll usually do pretty well. You know, I, I'll catch at least one a day, if not three, four, five, six different pike. And, um, if you can find open water and during that time, um, it's streamers fishing only. It's very slow retrieves. It's let that fly just sit and kind of hover in the water because the pike are just following food, right? So they're eating for the spawn. In the winter, they are very hungry. They're eating. They're the first to spawn in the spring. And so they're just loading up and they are huge too. They're literally double in size in their thickness and girth as they are in the summer. It's super cool. And so what I do is I'll sight fish a lot um, during this time, and I'll look for suckers. If I can find suckers, I know there's going to be pike nearby. 
you know, and so I'll look for those in the winter because the water's low, it's clear, you know, it's easy to see. But then the pike season shuts down in Wisconsin um, from March through May 1st. And so, um, and that is because they are spawning during that time. And so, you know, we can't target those fish and, um, you know, nor do I want to because that, that spawn is so important for our fisheries. Um, but it's pretty cool. I'll go out there sometimes and, and there's no smallmouth to be caught during that time either. And basically it's fine with me because I'm, I'm steelheading during that time. So, you know, whether it's me fishing or guiding and steelheading or, or trout fishing because the trout's really good during that time. Um, but I still like to go out and just hike the river and, and watch them because you can, you, they're lined up on reds just like a, a steelhead would be. It's super cool to see bike doing that. Um, but then when the season opens again in May, um, you know, I usually start off with streamers for about the first month and, um, they are starting to eat again because they don't eat too much during the spawn. You know, you, you can tell they're just sitting there. That's all they want to do is spawn. Um, but it's pretty much streamer time for, for the month of May. And, uh, they're still moving during that time. They're still moving into what I call their summer spots, you know? So sometimes in May it can be tricky. You, you've got to find them. You got to hunt them. Um, they're not lying, they're not in their usual spots yet where they are. They tend to be still in some of the deeper holes, deeper pockets on the river. Um, but then by, by June, by, 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 uh, by that, that first of June, they are in their summer spots and now it's game on. And I'm usually switching the top water at that time, throwing pretty large frog patterns and, um, and I'll pretty much be top water from then, at least in through for sure through July, you know, and then into the, like I said about the second third week of August. Um, but then we'll switch back for pike um, mid August to streamers, and they'll be taking streamers all the way again then into the winter season through November. So you know it, it's super cool. Um, the I would say that they're way more aggressive during the summer months but way bigger during the winter months. They're pre-spawn. Yeah. You're, they literally double in size. You look at some pictures that I, that I have and, and some of the fish in the summertime, these long skinny gator looking fish, that same fish will be like twice as thick, you know, in the winter. So it's super cool. That's kind of the season, you know, uh, you mentioned, um, you know, you can have some really good days in the winter, and that you could catch anywhere between one and, you know, five or six pike. And I know it's, it's fishing. So, you know, take that, take that in, in mind, but, um, what would be like an average day of fishing for you? Like how many pike are you generally bringing to the net, um, on, on a typical day, you know, during a time of year that, that you enjoy fishing? So for me personally, I, like one day last winter, I, I've got a one man water master. I took out and I caught 13 pike in a oh, day. Wow. I was like, <laughs> I crushed it. It was awesome. It was like December last year or something like this time last year and just absolutely crushed it. They were just kind of stacked up in this lower section of the river where I kind of had a hunch they would be, you know? And so that was, that was pretty cool. Um, if I go out by myself or with my buddy, um, Matt, who's my, my fishing buddy. Um, remember though, we're also in waters that have smallmouth, right? So we can go out and have, you know, a 30 fish day would would be a you know just a typical average good day wow. you know 20 30 fish day in there and and half of those fish are going to be pike you know um 
but I, when I go out, I tend to really target both species at once, you know? And so it's like kind of whatever we take, they live in the same water, you know, but they don't live together. See, that's the key. A lot of, they like the smallmouth are either going to be at the front end of a, of a, of a hole or, or a bend in the river, or they're going to be in the back of the pike will be in the front. They don't live together because those pike are the top dog, unless there's muskie in that river. But if there's muskie, the muskie are the top, top dog. But but those smallmouth want nothing to do with those pikes, so they're not going to live in the same spot. So if I catch a pike at the, let's say we get a big bend in the river, right? And, and I'm catching a pike at the front end of, of that bend, I'm not going to catch a smallmouth there. You know, it's gonna be it's gonna be twenty yards down down river that I might run into a smallmouth at that point. You know, so yeah, I mean the days fluctuate, but in the winter if I go out there and catch one, I'm happy. You know, it doesn't matter if I don't catch any, I'm happy as well. But um I'm usually good for a few fish, you know, and it just depends on the conditions and how cold it is, you know. If it's um if it's in that thirty degree range with no wind, um you know, then I'm not picking ice off my guides all day, you know, so you're getting more casts in the water, so you got a better chance, you know, but um, I, I would say, uh, for, you know, the, the for the pike in the in the summertime, man, we just, we just chuck frogs, frog patterns at them all the time, and, and that that's just amazing. See, with pike, they always say smallmouth are the hardest freshwater fight. I, I agree, they are. They, smallmouth pound for pound, they fight like a saltwater fish. Um, very similar to a red or a snook, but you pike, they don't fight like that. What you're, when you, when you are fishing for pike, you're after the, you're after the bite. You're after the strike. The strike is so vicious and so fast, especially on the top water. You can see a wake from a pike or a muskie because they're basically cousins. You know, you can see a, a wake coming from 20 feet away. And you got a 30, 36 inch pike coming and destroying your frog. And I mean, it's so visual and so exciting. And then they'll jump and they'll tail walk for you. But then after that, they generally lay down. And you can kind of drag them into the boat at that point, you know, and where smallmouth be fighting, tugging, and running, pulling drag the entire time, just about that you're fighting them. Um, but the coolest thing is, I, I don't even care because when you start stripping that bike in, and you get it to your feet or the edge of the boat, they just kind of stare at you, you know, <laughs> and they got those teeth and, and, and they're just, you just feel like he's looking at you, staring you down, yeah. you know, it's, <laughs> it's just kind of like, all right, you got me this time, but you're next, buddy, you know, <laughs> that's the kind of the feeling you get from those fish. So it's super cool. Yeah, it's really interesting that you described it that way because I actually just um, talked to a guy. I think his episode's coming out this week that we're, we're recording, um, this coming week. He said the exact same thing because he, he does mm-hmm. uh, a lot of pike and a lot of trout. And he was like, you know, I think of pike as being the, the cutthroats of the uh, kind of warmer water world because, you know, people really really want to get brown trout on the line because they fight so well. And it's such an exciting moment when you get one on. But um, he described cutthroats as being more like – you, you might see them swimming through crystal clear water and you've got to place your dry fly just right and you can watch them slowly come up and take it. And that's the exciting part. But once you get them on the line, it's they don't put up a huge fight once you get them on. No, and he was like, right. with pike, it's the same way. And it's the first time I, I'd ever heard pike be compared to cutthroat trout. But he said the same thing, that the whole part, the whole uh, act of pike fishing is all based around the puzzle and getting them to take it and that moment they take. But then after that, it's kind of like, all right, bring them in. 
get the hook out, send them on their way and go for the next one, the next take. Cause that's like the defining moment of, of pike fishing. Yeah, it, it is. It's, it's all about the strike, you know? And, and I tell my clients that, and that's what they get so excited about pike because most of them have never caught in a pike on the fly and they see it coming. It's so visual. It's, you know, and some of these bike are huge. I mean, we got 40 inch bike here. And so, you know, it's, it's just super cool to see, you know, and, and, but you still have to make the cast, you know, I mean, I think you asked me earlier a little bit about the cast. I don't know if I talked about that actually. I don't think I did. So one of the things I, I think is super important is that when you're, I mean, accuracy for smallmouth is really important. You got you got to na- nail that shot on the first cast. Otherwise, you, you're going to spook them. They're going to run. And so you got to be able to hit it from 30 feet. 40 is better. Stick it in a hula hoop on the pocket or structure and, and rip it through. Pike, you don't have to be as accurate. You just got to put it somewhere near there, you know, and you're in good shape. But I'd like to talk to, to everyone about the cast. Um, so way too many people spend way too much time casting. And so what I mean by that is, is that fly, if your fly is in the air and you're back casting one, two, three, four, five, you are just wasting time and, and not catching fish. Um, very few, um, very, very few times do I double haul, you know? Um, however, a single hole is really important. So to give you an example, it's hard in an audio recording to, to describe it, but I'll give them a shot. Okay, so you, let's say you've already casted and you got a streamer on and, and you're making casts. Let's say a, a, a 30 foot cast, so a, a good, a decent cast, 30 foot. And you're stripping it in, strip it in. So once you get to the point where you got about, you know, eight to 10 feet of your shooting head still out of your fly line, you need to recast. But if you, if you keep strip, if you keep stripping in and you're getting right to your guide, right to your leader. Well, first of all, that's not where the fish are. The fish are over on the bank. A fish would have already taken that fly by that time. These pike would have already taken it. Small moth would have taken it. So you should have already recast it. And so, what I have happen a lot is is folks are are stripping in too close and they're getting that leader to their to their their to their tip, and now they have no choice but to keep kind of back casting, back casting, and to get that fly line back out. And with me, I only fish six feet off a of bank. That is it. And so I'll cast, strip, 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 six feet off, boom, recast again. I want my fly in the water every three to five feet off that bank and that is it there is no sense of stripping it to the boat there's no sense sense of stripping it to your feet these are predator fish if they're there they're going to take and so what i what i like to teach and and what i focus on is strip it so that you've got about still eight to ten feet of your shooting head out and then use that as a use your fly as a water anchor and come back and and just single haul all I want is a single haul right there, boom, and reshoot it and hit your spot. And 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 if you can do that and keep that fly in the water, you're going to have a great day, you know. And so, you know, for example, if I, if I, you know, when I'm saltwater fly fishing, you know, it's a much smaller fly. It's much easier to double haul. 
a lot of times down in the Keys where I fish, it's super windy, you know, and so, you know, you're trying to cut wind. I get that. Build up, build up some speed. But with these flies that are, these eight-inch pike flies are, they're heavy. They're filled with water. They're going to carry that fly line for you. So all you have to do is just single haul and shoot. And as long as you're semi-accurate and get it close to the spot, you're going to, you're going to have a chance to catch a fish, you know? And so um, that single haul is, is an absolute clutch technique for, for warm water fish, whether it's musky, small mother bike, you got to be able to single haul and you got to, you got to deliver that fly on a rope, and, you know, and, and get it in the water. So um, I'd say that's the technique that's probably the most important. So uh, I'm trying to reconcile what, because what you're saying makes sense. Um, but I'm trying to reconcile that with what I've heard from a lot of people, which is the like the, the figure eight, which I don't know if that's as important with pike as it is for muskie, but you know that the idea that they will follow the fly the whole way up to the boat, let's say, and might might not take it until that last little you know flick of the fly in a in a little figure eight pattern. So do you ever do you ever do that, or have you found it just not necessary, or is that you know why why is that such a popular thing to to do? Um, it sounds like you're kind of doing the opposite. So they will, and so I do that when I wait. So a lot of times when I'm wading or with, I'm cli- with clients, if we drop anchor and, and I've got a section that we're going to wade, um, sometimes that pike and we can watch it or a muskie, you'll see it. It's following it, you know, and, and, and it will take it right by your feet too. What I, I guess what I'm talking about more is when you're in the raft, statistically speaking, you know, when you're thinking about keeping that fly in the water. See, if a, if a pike fo- or a muskie follows your fly to the boat, and doesn't take it's not it didn't just disappear that fish is still sitting right out there somewhere right so you can recast again maybe work a little bit different retrieve something a little bit different and still catch that fish you know and so a lot of times like you know for me it's all about okay that boat's moving i'm on the oars right i'm i'm, I'm holding the boat and holding it the water's moving as i'm keeping it i'm setting people up with the angle to make that cast you know what's their cast like what's their distance and where do i have to position the boat and what angle do i have to use so they can make that cast where i think that fish is so all of that's going on at one time and very few takes happen right at the boat or right at your feet i got it so you see what i'm saying so statistically you're gonna you're gonna catch more fish you're gonna have more action by keeping that fly in the water and letting it flutter. Now, keep in mind, though, when I say I'm fishing six feet off the bank, I'm doing a strip, strip, flutter, strip, strip, flutter. And that, you see what I'm saying? So that pause in my voice right there is the pause of the fish, and, it, and that fly is just hovering, and it's just kicking, and it's just sitting there, and strip, strip. And I don't, I don't figure eight. I, to me, it's like with a fly rod, it's too difficult, and and I just don't want to break rods. Yeah, I feel like with such a long rod, it's you end up kind of sticking half a thing down in the water. Whereas a spin rod, if it's really short, you you might only have the the top foot of it down in the water. So yeah, so most fly fishermen don't figure eight with it. Some try to. Most do a big oval with it, you know, or they just kind of flip it out there again, just just flip it out ten feet and. and and let it flutter and kick again and right where that fish is sitting, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I, I prefer to just, to just keep that fly in the water as, as, 
as long as possible. I've got videos up on my Instagram though, if you scroll back in where I've got I'm catching pike right at my feet. It's unbelievable. It's super cool. So it does happen, don't get me wrong. But when you're in the raft and we got a, we got eight hours to float, you know, and, and you're floating down the river, you got you know, you gotta just keep that fly, keep it moving, keep it in the water. I think one thing I may have been overlooking was the idea that you're in a moving boat. Because I think a lot of times when I picture figure eight, I'm picturing somebody on a lake. And then I think it maybe has more merit because you can take your time. You know, if you want to figure eight for a minute, you know, you're not you're not leaving the spot that you're trying to fish. You could just sit there and figure eight as long as you want. And you're not, you know, you might not be super productive, but you're at the end of the day, not really ruining anything. Whereas if you're moving past an area, um, I could see wanting to get like as many casts as possible into like the, the red zone, let's say. Um, and if you're wasting all your time on a low percentage chance that a pike is going to take it on that figure eight, then you potentially have missed all the water that was going to be holding pike um, and or <laughs> making your arms go numb from rowing constantly right. to keep them in the same spot. <laughs> exactly. Well, so pike and muskie are different. So obviously they're related fish. They're they're you know they can mate and they produce a tiger muskie, but they are their eating patterns are super different. So pike will almost always eat. They're they'll just reactionary strike eat. They'll when they're hungry they're eating. When they're not hungry they're eating. <laughs> it's crazy. It doesn't matter. They're just absolutely crazy. Where muskie are different. Muskie eat and they gorge themselves and they sit and digest and they do not eat. They'll go for, some people say they go for days or a week without eating. You know, I, I've heard, I've heard people say that muskie eat once a week and that's it. I've heard people say they eat once a day and that's it. I've, I've seen it though. In fact, I walked into a muskie two weeks ago in clear water and he was sitting behind a bunch of, bunch of suckers and I saw him, and I threw that fly at that fish. He wasn't big. He's was 30-inch musky. I was telling my buddies about it. And uh, he would not take. Would not take. It did not matter. I made him twitch a couple times at it, but he wouldn't take. And I just know he, he's digesting, you know. Uh, my buddy and I ran into a, a massive, massive four-foot musky. Huge. On the river last year. And, and watch the thing. I've got a video of me walking up right to its tail wouldn't move and because it was just sitting there digesting you know where pike are different they eat smaller fish they you know they uh, they just uh, they're more opportunistic so um, I think they'll always come back for it so if you miss like if you're fishing for bike and 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 you and you trout set it on accident or the fish whiffs or whatever you come right back at that same fish he's gonna take I've had a pike take five different times <laughs> yeah they're crazy they're crazy fish. when you're doing that um strip strip pause how big are the strips mm -hmm. you're taking is this like a kind of a full body motion or are these you know i'm picturing from the range of sometimes with trout you're just pulling your fingers and obviously that's probably not what you're doing for pike but you know strip strip pause can mean very different things depending on which side of the, the spectrum you're on with the strip strip so like tell me what like an average strip strip pause um like length and length of pause are that's a good question. I actually teach that a lot when I'm on the boat. So when I get when I get really good fishermen, good fly fishermen, right? That's that's when I know we're going to game on. We're going to have a great day, and I'll just I'll work with them a little bit about some concepts. And that's one of the concepts I work on actually. So I'm very similar to like the saltwater guys, where there's strip and then there's ticks, right? So 
for me, a strip is, you know, eight to 12 inches of line. And what, what I always say is, is we're going to strip it. We're going to strip it out into the left at a 90 degree angle if you're right handed. So whether just, let's just say you're stripping hand, right? So your stripping hand is always going to go out to the left on a 90 degree angle rather than straight back. If you're going to go straight back to your hip, to your holster, that more than likely that fish is going to work more of a straight line. You, you run that, you run that strip out 90 degrees to your left and that fly is going to kick. And when it kicks, it can kick up to a foot um, to the left or to the right or whatever, but um, super cool. So when I strip ship flutter, or, or usually it's, a, it's, it'll be, if there's a hot fish, if I know there's a pike there and he's, maybe he came up and, and whiffed or missed it or circled on it, you know, I'll go back at it again. I'll strip, strip, strip flutter, you know, where it's boom, 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 one, two, three. Um, but generally it's just one, two flutter, one, two flutter, let it sit. And usually on the flutter, that's when they're going to take it and hit. And that's where you got to strip set your, your, your line. Um, now, but ticks are a different deal. So, um, the ticks are, let's say I make a cast from 30, 40 feet. It's sitting, um, the flies in a, in a pocket. And I want that fly to sit there for a few minutes. You know, I'm on the oars um, and, and I want that fly to just sit there. I don't want it to go anywhere yet because I want it to drop a little bit. I want it to get a little bit deeper down into the water column. And so I'll, I'll tell my clients, don't do anything. Don't do anything. Let it sit. Let it sit. Okay, now tick it. Tick. And that's just a little four-inch tick, you know. And, and that's just, just tick it. Just give it some life. And that little tick will just make that fly just kind of, kind of move, just kind of sit in one spot, but move. And I'll say, tick it, tick it, tick it. And sometimes we'll just get a blow up right there. Or sometimes I'll say, okay, now strip it, now strip it. And and we're just trying to create action. We're trying to create motion, movements in the water. Um, these are predator fish. These are not human beings. They want to go eat that thing. They want to kill it. You know, they are, you've got to make it come alive, you know? So whether it's the frog pattern or whether it's the, um, it's the streamer. You have to make it come alive. And the way you make it come alive is by, is by how the, the fly is designed, um, the construction, and also um, how you strip and, and, and make that fly tick. We've talked a couple of times about um, the fly sinking and, you know, letting the fly get down to where it needs to be. And you also talked about the wire leader and how that's going to help, help it get down. Uh, is there much weight on the fly itself to help it get down? Because, you know, with all the feathers and the size of the fly, it looks like something that if you just toss it out, it might just kind of float on the water for a bit um, before it actually gets waterlogged and goes under. Is there is there like some weight on the fly to, to kind of counteract the buoyancy of all the feathers on it? No, no, they're, 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 uh, they're weightless, you know. So I would say like, you know, uh, I know the audience can't see them here, but um, like here's one. This is a orange uh, head fly that tapers down to, uh, and it's kind of a green underbelly with some flash in it, um, with some hackle feathers built in as, as like uh, lateral lines. And, uh, so this fly right here, um, it really comes down to the, to the materials. Um, but I like to use a, a head like this craft for a head that absorbs a little bit more water than, than, than bucktail or, uh, or like a synthetic material that's made out of uh, squimpish here. And the head, when it fills up with a little bit more water, that's going to give you more kick, you know? So I like to, what I like to do is I like to combine my flies with, with 
um, tails that are less absorbent. And I work my way to a head that's more absorbent of water. And that's what really gives you the good kick from left to right when you're stripping. So the weight, the, there's no weight added to my flies. Um, and rather than weighting the fly, I'd prefer to use a shorter leader and a sink tip. So when I'm using a sink tip, now I'm going to shrink my leaders down significantly. Now for pike and muskie, I'm using a, a four foot leader. And sometimes I'll go straight 60 pound, straight 50 pound, 60, 50. Um, and, and that is, that is it. Nothing. I've never broke, I've never had a pike or a muskie bite through 50 pound. I know, I know I, guys have though. I mean, but, but I've never have, um, 50 pound fluorocarbon, you know, so you don't have to have the bite wire, but bite wire does give you some peace of mind that, that you're gonna, you're gonna land that fish. Now is the shorter leader with the sink tip, just because you don't need that extra leader material to allow the fly to sink? Exactly. Okay. Yes, exactly. Because now you're you're relying on the on the, the the sinking tip to do the work for you, and so you want to shrink that down because you don't want the tip sinking at a faster rate than the fly itself. You know, so if you were to use like a a nine foot leader with a sink tip, the tip's going to be sinking, and then but but it's not going to bring the fly down because you have to wait for the for the entire leader to get to drag down with the you know with the fly line. You know, so, so yeah, so even, even when I'm swinging flies and, and I do a lot of spade casting as well. And so when I'm spade casting or I guess I use a skagit head, so skagit casting for, um, for steelhead and salmon, you know, that's only, th- people don't realize that's only a three foot leader off that. That's it. Three foot. And, and, and then you, you're to your fly. And that's all you need. So, but, but you really have to, you know, in fly fishing, leader construction is really, really important. I'll, I'll have clients show up who they want, you know, many of them want to use their own rods, which is great. I want them to, but, but I'll have to build them a leader, you know, and they're always fascinated by the leader, you know, because they never think of it. I'm like, yeah, man, the leader's got to match the fly. It's got to match the rod. So if all those things aren't in congruence, you're going to, Something's not going to be right. You know, when I, when I have people that are flopping flies or, or something's just not going right with their casts, usually, if, if they have decent fundamentals, it's usually the leader. Now, one uh, kind of final question, just thinking of someone who has maybe never caught a pike before, it's a little, uh, it could be a little interesting when you first get one in. Especially if you're used to something like trout, uh, you know they're very, very slippery. Uh, you can't; it's hard to get a good grip on them, and they've obviously got a, a mouthful of teeth, and they're not happy. So, like, do, do you uh, do you have any um, instances of of getting chomped, or have any advice for somebody who's who's just landed their first pike and is like, now what do I do? Yeah, for sure, I do. I talk about this, and I teach this a lot, actually, because clients they want to obviously hold their own fish, they want to release it, they want take the hook out well first of all it starts with a proper hook set okay so the number one way that you will lose fish is trout setting so you know in warm water species and salt water if you trout set you're going to lose fish you need a strip set so strip that fly right to your hole i call it your holster you know right to your hip strip it hard you know when you feel that hit you strip if you trout set, you're going to lose the fish uh, more than likely. And so first get a good strip set. 
The second thing is recognize the actual strike. Don't wait. Once it strikes, you've got to strip set right away. If you wait, that fly is going to get deep into its mouth, maybe into its gills. And, you know, and now, you know, we're digging for the fly and we don't want to do that. You know, the other thing is, is, is I, I only use one hook flies. I know that a lot of people tie on a stinger fly or stinger uh, hook or that have two hook flies. I don't because when I'm pike fishing, that stinger hook will often, back in the day, I'm, I'm not even, but when I used to, they would get stuck in their gills. That would, you know, it was just terrible for the fish. And so when you have one hook, even if it gets deep in its mouth, you're going to be okay 99% of the time. Um, but you have to have, the, I would say the next thing you have to have is a good set of pliers, uh, needle neck, uh, needle nose pliers, and you have to have jaw spreaders. There will be times where that fly gets deep into the mouth of the pike. You can't reach it with your, you know, with your, your uh, pliers and you have to spread the jaws. Some people think it's barbaric and I get it. It does not look pretty, but you still have a chance to save that fish when that happens. And I'll tell you, I've had fish where I've had to spread them and get that fly out safely. And those fish are fine. They fish, they swim away like it was nothing ever happened. Get them right in the water again. But you have to have those tools and it's safer for you and safer for the fish. The other thing, as I, I would say, is I don't usually net pike. So once pike have big teeth and lots of teeth, and if you have a rubber net, you'll be okay. But if you don't, don't net them with a with a some kind of a nylon net because those teeth, the hook, it's going to get wrapped around, and that's when uh, it can be dangerous for you and the fish. Um, so I tend to not net them at all. I tend to just bring them to me, bring them to the boat, or bring it to my feet. And I just, I just say, let it thrash out. When you think a pike is thrashed out, they always have one more thrash in them. So I would, I'll, I'll kind of tickle their belly a little bit, give them a thrash, you know, and, and, and they'll thrash out one more time and then they'll settle down. Well, once they settle down, there's there, we want to get that hook out, out of them, obviously. So um, there's two ways you can grab a pike. You can grab a pike right behind the ears, right on top of the head and turn them over on their belly. And the combination of those two things will, will kind of paralyze that fish. And, and now you can do a, a safe, uh, uh, you know, hook release. Um, don't squeeze too hard, but just kind of grab them behind the ears. But pike, a lot of people don't realize, they have a membrane. And that membrane is right underneath their, it's not in their gills at all. You know, it's right underneath their chin. And, you go in front of the gills and you don't even touch the gills. I, I never come near the gills at all. And you run a finger up into that membrane and, and the finger ends up underneath its, its lower jaw. And if you put a finger up into that membrane and now dehook it, you can safely grab the fish with your other hand and hold it up for a photograph um, or a clean release and a clean, clean release um, in the water. And that fish is absolutely safe and fine. And so that's that's the proper way to hold and to manage a pike. 
you, oh, you do not want those your fingers being near the mouth of that fish. So if you're if you got if you're in that membrane with your fingers, you're in good shape. The fish will be in good shape. If that fish wants to thrash on you, you know, just let it go. Let it go. You know, a couple of days ago, I caught a fish that I, I, I kind of held it up and I was looking at it as a cool fish and, and started thrashing. I just boom, did this, just dropped my hands and she flopped in front of me and swam away only because I don't want to hurt her. And I don't, I don't want to get hurt as well. I don't, those teeth are, are pretty big. So I would say those are the keys to, to uh, properly handling and, and uh, managing a, a, a pike or a muskie, you know, and so. If you do those things, you know, you'll be in good shape. Great. Well, George, is there anything that you think we should have covered that um, I didn't ask about? Like anything that if someone's going out pike fishing for the first time or wants to get better at it, that is just kind of like a, a good piece of advice they should know? Yeah, you know, I would say one of the things is just handling them properly. Like we talked about being safe because they can be dangerous. Um, I've cut my hand up pretty darn good. I mean, really good on some of those teeth. So be careful with that. Um, I'd say the, the other thing is be careful on some of the rivers that you're fishing for pike because um, pike will live in rivers that are often slower moving. They'll be in rivers that might be a little bit more mucky, a little more muck bottom. So if you're, if you're waiting, uh, be careful. God knows I've fallen in over my head. Um, more times than I can count, and, you know, and, and chasing these fish and, and uh, uh, just keep that fly in the water. You know, if something looks fishy, you know, if it looks like, if it looks like a fish would live there, you know, structure of some kind, you know, and, um, or a real nice eddy, a slow moving eddy near a high bank cast to it because, because more than likely there's going to be a, a fish there if you're in pike water. Okay. Well, uh, just to wrap up, um, you know, where can people find you if they want to book a trip with you, if they want to find you on Instagram or, or your website, um, where, where can they find you? Yeah. Th thanks, Katie. Um, so my business is called In the Flow Fly Fishing, and I'm in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. That's in southeast Wisconsin. It's a vacation community um, that is kind of right in the middle between uh, Milwaukee and Chicago. And uh, I fish uh, everything from smallmouth bass, pike, muskie, uh, trout in the driftless to steelhead, browns, and salmon in the tributaries of Lake Michigan. And um, so you can go to my website at intheflowflyfishing.com. Uh, um, on Instagram, my personal Instagram is zivio, uh, that's Z-I-V-I-O, 51. And um, my Instagram for the business is in the flow of fly fishing and same thing on uh, Facebook for both of those on, on Instagram. I post all my guide pictures on the, the business Instagram and, and Facebook, my personal pictures and flies. If you're interested in fly construction and flies, I do put a lot of flies up on my own page as well. I enjoy the photography and the, and the tying aspect of that as well. So, um, yeah, fi find me there. And, and, uh, I know I get a lot of questions. You asked me earlier, Katie, what, what, what is, what is Zivio or Givio? It's actually pronounced Givio and it's, uh, uh, it's my family's Croatian. And, and so it's, uh, Givio means, means to life, kind of like a cheers. Um, and then 51 was, uh, my little brother's uh, football number and, and he passed away four years ago. So, um, so yeah, so that, that's it. Come and uh, look me up and, and uh, let's, uh, let's talk fishing. Let's get out on the river.
yeah, I can attest to the fact that you've got a, a good Instagram account. That's how I found you. And I was trying to think, like, I, I want to talk about Pike, but, like, I don't really know anyone. And I was like, no, I think there's somebody I follow that is always posting Pike pictures. So I, like, searched through until I found you. I was like, that's it. So um, I can attest to the fact that you do have a lot of uh, awesome Pike content, um, both video and, and photographs. So uh, people just check you out. And uh, hopefully if I ever end up in your neck of the woods, uh, maybe you can show me around the Pike up there. Because um, like I told you before we started recording, if, if we weren't tied to the mountains, I think your neck of the woods would be uh, where we might want to go. Yeah, super cool. Wisconsin's awesome. It really is. I I got to tell you, I, I in terms of fishing goes, as far as the amount of species and the seasons that we have, it's a 12 month a year deal. And, and uh it's got everything you can ask for. It's pretty cool. Awesome. Well, I will let you get on with your evening, but um, thank you so much for, for walking me through Pike 101, and uh, hopefully uh, you have some good luck on the water coming up. Yeah, super thanks, Katie. I appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget to head over to the website, fishuntamed.com, for all episodes and show notes. And also, please subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. That'll get my episodes delivered straight to your phone. And also, if you have not yet, please consider going over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating or review. That's very helpful for me, and I'd greatly appreciate it. Um, Other than that, thank you guys again for listening, and I will be back in two weeks. Bye, everybody.